Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambhutasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami Well, thank you, Bruce, and thank you, everyone, for making this center possible. Whatever the topic that was listed <laughs> for this evening, I can assure you it will be slightly different than that. The Dhamma is like a big bedsheet, and whatever corner you grab, you just start pulling, and eventually you get it all. So I just will tend to start somewhere, and by the end of the talk, we've got the whole bedsheet. <laughs> about, about a year, maybe two years ago, I did a retreat in New Zealand with Saida Utejaniya, and he and I got to spend a lot of time informally together. At, on that retreat. And I'd never been to Burma, and so um, I didn't fully understand uh, what the meditation centers are like in Burma. Right? But I, I started to get the impression that in a lot of meditation centers, there the idea of being on retreat and what is considered meditation or practice proper practice is essentially sitting, doing a specific technique, maybe walking meditation, but it, it means, you know, doing sitting and walking, formal meditation. And outside of that, they try to limit other activities because they consider it a distraction to practice. Ajahn Chah in the forest tradition is not like that at all. Everything that we do, we're trained to develop a continuity of awareness so that every single action is that it, that becomes our meditation at that specific moment, at that time. Right? So theoretically, you know, it's easy to say make everything into meditation, but it's a lot more difficult than that. You, even sitting with our eyes closed it can still be difficult to maintain a continuity of clear awareness and uh, a f focused attention, a, a, a depth of serenity. And then with every activity extending outwards, it becomes a little bit more challenging. But that was the goal. That was the idea of the whole Ajahn Chah style of training and generally in the forest tradition. You make everything into meditation. So when we're on alms round, every step, you know, we're going barefoot through the village. Every step, we're very aware of that, especially when I was a young monk and going through the village, you really had to be careful your step because there's piles of water buffalo poop everywhere. <laughs> so you really didn't want to step in one of those. Or there might be a sharp rock. Or, you know, you really 
paid attention to every step and then you pay attention to the the purpose of what you're doing. So maintaining this, this sense of I'm, I'm a vehicle for generosity and developing gratitude with every person that we, we silently interact with throughout the village. Uh, maintaining composure with the body. Huh? Um, is a beautiful way to start the day for, for everybody. From the mass, monastic community, we're just silently walking through the village as the sun is coming up and and silently the you know the people are coming out of their houses and and placing something in our bowl and starting the day the whole village starts the day with with giving and generosity it's a very you know it creates a very uh positive and lighthearted culture so everything that we do was was this is the meditation. How do we then turn this activity into a vehicle for developing wholesome states of mind? And this is the criteria for the place we're living, the environment within which we're living, the practice that we're doing, the technique, the teacher, everything. Is it leading to an increase in wholesome states of mind or a decrease in wholesome states of mind? Right? more than any any other criteria you want to look at just just say this period of life what i'm going through right now this particular situation this retreat is it leading to an increase in wholesome states of mind or not and even though that's a simple standard it's not always easy to judge sometimes you're on retreat and you think i feel like i'm going backwards and we're not really going backwards we're just kind of getting down to the next level we've opened up and the next level and more stuff is, is piling up to the surface or we've opened up another closet door and more skeletons are falling out. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, even with a simple standard like that, you have to give it a, a chance and, and watch it over a period of time. But if you can see that over a period of time, oh, wait a minute, even though I thought this would be leading to happiness, this situation, this this whole life that I've created. I thought it would be leading to happiness, but it's actually leading to a decrease in wholesome states of mind. Then, okay, maybe we need to make some changes. You know? Or conversely, sometimes we're going through very difficult periods. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't choose to be going through something, but we realize actually. <laughs> Actually, it's making me more patient. Um, I'm learning how to be more forgiving. Uh, you know, it's begrudgingly, it's leading to an increase in wholesome states of mind. We realize, well, okay, that's if that's the standard that we're we're choosing, then that helps to guide certain decisions that we make in life. So everything, everything then in our style of practices is then. Our meditation object, whatever we're doing at that time, right? I mean, if we're if we're washing our bowl, that is where we place our full attention. Right? A simple action of washing our bowl. I mean, my bowl is almost this big. <laughs> so I grab this massive Japanese-style bowl. My bowl is almost this big. My initial bowl was an iron bowl when I was. When I was first ordained, it was kind of a hand-me-down that no one else wanted because it was so big and so heavy, and it was iron. It was like really 
you know, real iron with patches that were all hammered together and had some holes in it that I had to fix before it would hold my curries. And uh, it weighed a ton. It was it felt like it was this big. And but when we're, you know, when you're when you're eating, then then that is a whole meditation in itself. I mean, the way we eat just brings up so much. If you want to learn, if we want to learn about ourselves, just pay close attention to how we eat. You know, you know how we perceive it, how we react. How I mean, that's a whole meditation in itself. And then, and then, you know, washing the bowl. This is our meditation. It's like establishing mindfulness before you. Right? This is like in a Satipatthana Sutta. One sits down and establishes mindfulness in front of one. And, and while you're, you're squatting and you're washing your bowl, you know, that is. And then you're drying your bowl. And then you know, your attention is with your body. And, and we wouldn't keep total silence. It was not encouraged to keep total silence. In the Rains Retreat, it's actually forbidden to, to keep total silence. Uh, the Buddha didn't want people to, to take vows of silence. Um, but we were encouraged to speak little and just what is necessary. And that's a very difficult standard. How much is necessary? How much is beneficial? What type of speech gives rise to wholesome states of mind? What type of speech gives rise to um, distracted, restless, um, useless states of mind? Right? And so while we're, while we're washing our ball... You know, if there wasn't something necessary to say, then um, we're encouraged just to keep silence. But after you eat, and the sun is shining, and it's nice, and you're washing your bowl, and everyone's feeling kind of good, that's when you really want to chat with the other monks. You know, have a laugh, have a chat. And, but um, but would we do that in the meditation hall? Right? And it comes back down to, okay, yeah, sometimes talking and chatting is really it was really fun. But then uh, if we're going to turn everything into meditation, it's like, okay, well, I need to re- rethink my patterns, you know, re- our conditioning that we've... <laughs> our conditioning that we've developed for for decades. You know, it doesn't go away overnight. But then, then we start to rethink, okay, well, if I really want to make an activity into a meditation, what does that entail? Right? What does that mean? So I, today I came down from uh, the Redwood Hermitage, which is a little piece of property up in the Santa Cruz Mountains near Boulder Creek. And uh, I've been going up there for about 10 years now, and every year just living in a tent and just going an alms round to a local Tibetan center at Vajrapani, and they've graciously, generously offer me one meal every day and I come back and and eat and so it is a very traditional way of of living as a forest monastic. You live in the forest, surrounded by nature. Nature is our primary teacher. You live very simply and go on alms round and come back and life is was relatively simple. This year it's a bit more complicated because we're building our first hut. Right? And so it's easy for me to think, oh, this is an obstacle. You know, building is a hassle. Building is a, is a, it makes me tired. Uh, you know, there are innumerable ways one could view building as an obstacle. Or, but if I do that, does it give rise to wholesome states of mind? Absolutely not. 
Now, I, I've lived in Thai monasteries, and most of the year, there wouldn't be, there would just be uh, a, a regular routine. But in the cold season, especially, you know, when it's dry and it's conducive, whatever building's going to happen, you know, that's usually the time that it happens. And, and uh, I was staying at one monastery. A disciple of Ajahn Mahabua, and his name was uh, Venerable Ajahn Wanchai. And he was known as being like kind of fierce. He was like a young Ajahn Mahabua. You know, he was really fierce, but he was still in his 40s and full of energy and vigor and would give long Dhamma talks on a regular basis. And, and uh, the whole monastery just kind of had this feeling of a buzzing of, 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 practice and enthusiasm for practice and but when it was time to build a hut that was really something like he would be there on site and i'm not advocating this is appropriate for the redwood hermitage but he would be he would he would be there on site and the whole sangha is there say maybe maybe there's 25 monks mostly mostly young men right and and he was be saying okay you go do this you you know chop that you know prepare this you, you get the tools ready boom 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 and if anyone's standing around he said why are you standing around <laughs> you know and so everyone had to find something to do and and things happened very quickly and with things happening very quickly you couldn't space out there was just no time to space out right on a building site it's so easy just to you know, two or three kind of chatting, not really paying attention, but but things had to be done in a, in a proper order. So as soon as this was done, they're ready for the next thing. And then if anyone's not there ready, then it holds everything up. And so you had to pay attention to the whole group. You had to pay attention to what everybody's doing. Right? And so it was very different practice than just being alone in our hut, watching our nose tip or watching mental states arise and pass away or you know, this is like all around uh, mindfulness training. You know, paying attention to to everyone in this particular situation, and then how do I interact with that? And then there's this feeling of kind of a dynamic interaction. And you know, if you tried to, let's say, you're hammering nails, for example, in Thailand, if you're hammering, Thai nails are really poor quality. Right, really, they're bad. And so, if you try to rush, then you're likely to mishit the nail. If you hit it on the side, it just bends, and then it takes extra time. Right, and if you're too slow, then then you hold everybody else up. You know, kind of they put up a board. Someone's putting up a board. Ajahn Wanchai is watching. Put up a board, and then your job is to nail it. Boom, 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 boom. Put up another board. Boom, boom. And if you're too slow you hold it up if you're if you're not paying close enough attention maybe or maybe just not peaceful then you kind of miss hit it it bends and then you have to spend all this time embarrassing time trying to get it out and especially if you're the only westerner there all the other time monks are so graceful they're like walking on beams barefoot you know they don't use ladders safety safety standards are like you know would be a headache 
uh, for any American contractor. And I mean, they just, there's like poles and they just shimmy up the poles and hold themselves on with their legs while they're holding this huge drills, you know, drills to go through big beams. And they're just kind of holding themselves on with the legs and then they'll get on, just shimmy across the two by four. And <clears throat> so they're very graceful. And then comes a clumsy, highly educated Westerner into the scene and, <laughs> And, and you know, trying to be in touch with his body and, and trying not to get injured, just trying not to draw blood. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, nailing, you realize, no, you know, if I'm, it's really like samadhi, you know, if I'm, if I'm too pushed or stressed, I'm going to mishit it, right? So the only way to do it is to, pay close attention but also to be peaceful and relaxed you have to be serene otherwise it just doesn't work and then when you're when you kind of find that balance of being peaceful serene but energized i mean the whole work site is just like buzzing with energy and po- you know positive is fun ajahn's there you know it's like but at the same time you have to be really peaceful so you get, you find a way to get in the zone it's like it's like it's like being in the zone meditation and action and then you just kind of like visualize the nail going in before you hit it and it goes boop and you, and you hit that sweet spot and you realize ah oh, that's a bit that's a lesson right it's like this is a mind training this is how to train the mind through nailing it's like it's like okay and then you get that sweet spot boop and that was good in the sweet spot boop and then you think oh wow now i'm in the sweet spot and then the next one you go yeah miss hit because you know a thought comes in you're really in the self sense of self come in so oh now i'm in the sweet spot or now i'm in the zone and that messes everything up it was really like oh okay kind of start over again you have to just the whole thing is just like okay just let go get in the flow just go go and then after a while you know that starts to become normal and uh you know, you get in, and then you feel okay. Now I'm getting out of it again. I'm falling out of it again. And then you get back in, and, it's kind of, and you realize, wow, this is really like a meditation training. Because then, when you go back and you sit meditation at the end of the day, even if you're physically tired, there's you feel like you've been meditating the whole day. The mind is like sharp and focused and energized. At the same time, you're really peaceful and joyous, and and uh, and then it's like really easy. So this is kind of the forest ideal of of making everything into meditation. This is how we train in, in, in all around mindfulness with every activity that we do. And if anyone wants to practice doing that, well, we're actually building a hut right now. So uh, not, this was not actually intended to be a plug for, for volunteers. However... Uh, there are meditation uh, opportunities available at this time. So it is interesting, you know, going back and forth between Asian culture and, and Western culture. I spent 15 years living in Thailand, uh, and I've lived in New Zealand then for 12 years. Even in New Zealand, um, a lot of our... Uh, a lot of the uh, support, the people who come to the retreats are of Asian origin, of various types. So it was very diverse. And you know, seeing this interaction between an Asian tradition, 
modern Western culture, and uh, and just noticing, just noticing, <laughs> you know, it's it just noticing all the funny things that happen. Um, like in, I mean, we talk about building like in in Thailand in the in Ajahn Chah's day. You know, the meditation hall was just a concrete floor, probably a tin roof. All the all the huts or kutis just had tin roofs. Um, no, often usually no walls or certainly no glass or screens in the windows, if there were windows. And so um, it was usually hot and uncomfortable and the floor was uncomfortable and Never, we would have, we would have, we. I wouldn't say we would have killed for a zafu or zabutan, but we would have. Something we. Uh, it's one of those things that comes up in your mind, you know. I started with the Zen tradition, so I was kind of used to having a bit of cushion under me, and then you go to Thailand, and it's just like right there on the floor, and, you know. If you can sneak a, a rolled-up towel underneath your bottom, but you know, to raise you up, then you're lucky. But it, uh, you know. Uh, it's just a very different attitude uh, towards um, the the supports uh, for Dhamma practice. You know, we uh, these days, you know, this is such a, a beautiful center. Everything's great. It's beautiful. Um, in Thailand, you know, often uh, you know things aesthetics aesthetics were not. <laughs> If they were a consideration, it was a very different aesthetic than what I would have considered beautiful. Um, sometimes, you know, it's just like really kind of ugly. It's whatever's available, you know, tin roofs and and um, brick or concrete, and and yet, and yet, the best dhamma I've ever heard, you know, the best dhamma I've ever heard was, was in places like that. You know, it was just so uh, alive. Um, you know, it was really. Uh, and then as as time goes on and things become a bit more um, beautiful or, or pleasant or or not luxurious, but, you know, a step up above concrete, um, yeah, I don't know, it's not, it's not quite the same. So, and then coming to the West, it's it's like a whole nother level, you know, you know that we're, we're just used to, I don't know, this just what we're used to, what's normal for us. I mean, 30 years ago, 50 years ago in rural Thailand, what was normal for, for the average person was uh, a very simple level of, of physical existence, material existence. And so the forest monasteries would then be a step down from that. <laughs> you know, it's a renounce a little bit. But for us, then coming from from, say middle-class America, it was a huge step down. And then suddenly coming back now, it's, uh, it, everything is, seems very luxurious. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting, well, how does that affect, what role does that play, right? Our, we can't get away from the fact that our environment influences us whether it's the natural environment or the social environment or even how we decorate the hall. Right? And yet, and yet, to a certain degree, it's just like, well, whatever, right? I mean, definitely Thailand is more of the whatever ex- end of the extreme. You know, if, if, um, 
if it's a tin roof, that's fine. If it's if someone offers red paint, that's fine. If someone offers green paint, that's fine. Whatever, you know. But in the often, I mean, I'm not resident here in the United States, but I visit various centers, and I know sometimes there's a lot of discussion that goes into the color of the paint on the walls, <laughs> right? And and. Uh, I mean, if it's not, the whole thing may be painted, and then there's more discussion. So, well, we don't think it's the right color. <laughs> and so the whole thing gets repainted, right? And so, so, you know, it's true, the environment affects us, but on the, there's a balance, you know? And then, because uh, in Thailand, it's like, well, whatever, just you paint it if you want but you don't have to paint it and and more often than not it gets painted a garish color if you've lived in thailand or burma um garish is like their aesthetic (laughs) (laughs) i mean i guess they like it but you know it's like buddhas with concentric neon lights that go (laughs) boop 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 in in different garish colors you know it's like boop and from the West, you think, God, that is so crass and kind of ugly. But, you know, then we think, well, from their perspective, they find it inspiring. <laughs> so, fine, whatever works. So this particular generation, I guess I'm kind of in the midst of it, This this generation that is maybe trained in Asia to some degree and then living and practicing the Dhamma in the West is very unique transference that's going on at this point in history. You look at 2,600 years of history, you know, there's certain certain periods where, you know, the Dhamma is trans, transmitted, you know, translated, and... It's a it's a real dance sometimes. It still is. It's been going on for a long time, and it's kind of settled a bit. Uh, but it's still kind of a dance between um, bringing a very Asian tradition, profound tradition that's been there for thousands of years, into a completely new culture. And not falling into the extremes of you know, saying, "Well, we know best of of what the real Dhamma is, so we don't want any of any of culture, any cultural accretions." But then realizing after a time, well, actually, we may not. Actually, that was pretty important. Maybe we should keep that. You know, if don't want to rush into throwing things out too quickly, and yet, and yet there are, and yet there are traditions sometimes that have developed that the original purpose is gone. Right, and they're they're kept up because of tradition. But then you realize you come from a different perspective, and you see, well, actually, I don't think we need to continue that. That's more of tradition for this culture or this country, and um, it's not part of the Dhamma or the Vinaya. We can make changes, and that all is a very organic process. But I still spend a a lot of time with Asians. Our monastery is very diverse. You know, if we have a group of 20 people in the monastery, you probably have 15 or so different uh, countries represented. Uh, so ethnically, it's very diverse. Culturally, it's very diverse. And so we have to, 
to to kind of balance in a sense. Okay, how are we going to how are we going to make this uh, available to everybody yeah, in a way that that honors people's particular perceptions from where they're coming from, and yet does not stray from integrity to the Dhamma practice. I mean, even in the U.S., of course, we have so many different cultures coming together. How do we, how do we keep true to the core and yet pay attention to, well, this person or this culture tends to see it from this perspective, and this culture sees it from a totally different perspective. You know? So there's a bit of a, a flexibility necessary you know, kind of the kind of the dance, and so that leads to uh, um, a very fertile ground. Often, the for example, the the Thais come to the monastery with so much joy, and the Westerners can come to the monastery with so much seriousness. You know, and there's and it, both are good. You know, I mean, I I know when I first came to the meditation hall. I was really serious, not fooling around. I mean business, you know. And it's like, how was your meditation? Yeah, <laughs> go no pain, no gain. You know, just stick it out. And and then I lived in Thailand and realized, wow, you know, they really enjoy life, even in the monastery. You know, in a wholesome way, uh, they just have a good time. They, it's very lighthearted, and so that's it's infectious. And, and the Westerners, you know, come to the monastery with sincerity and energy for practice. And, and the Thais come to the monastery, and they're all like, they just love it. You know, they just they just have such a great time. And so that's infectious, and that helps the Westerners to open up a bit. I mean, I'm generalizing somewhat, but you know, these are fair categories, and kind of helps the Westerners to open up a bit. And the Thais see these Westerners, you know, who don't even come from a Buddhist culture, and they're like really getting into meditation. The Thais start to think, "Geez, you know, I was born in a Buddhist culture. I, I've never really meditated much. Maybe I should do. I could do that too. It's not just for the monks. Anyone can do it." And so they start to get into meditation. Maybe they learn about Buddhism more deeply for the first time in their lives in the West rather than learning from it in Thailand, learning about it in Thailand. So there's a real fertile mix that happens. You know? And so that's the yeah, that's positive side of it. And, then, and it's, you know, it's interesting just to, to recognize to what degree we're all living in our own perceptions that are projected out, right? I mean, just how how people view the Buddha. If you just take a, an example, uh, how do people view the Buddha? Now, maybe the ex- I mean, there are there are places in Asia that fall into the extreme of um, almost deity worship. Right, they've come. They've kind of lost the lost the plot so much with Buddhism that they kind of just go light incense, pray for um, their son or daughter to pass their uh, university exams, uh, pray for pray to have a baby, get a financial success, as if their prayers are going to be answered. Right? I mean, this is uh, maybe in a that's an that's an extreme that you do find 
in some places in Asia. And so in that situation, um, the Dhamma has really uh, uh, been lost over the centuries. However, you have, you have um, the majority who maybe have a bit of that feeling just because, you know, their grandparents did it, their parents did it. It's kind of a tradition. You go and do this. But, but at the same time, you know, they, they're really interested in, you know, they know that there's much more to it than that. Right? And this is where the Ajahn Chah and the Forest Masters worked really hard to uh, educate the, their whole generation on what the the essence of, of Buddhist practice was. You know, there was a very strong foundation of faith. There was a very strong foundation of sila, of, of ethical behavior. I mean, those days, uh, the, there was very little theft, very little lying, stealing. I mean, um, there was some killing for for eating, but uh, generally the 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 ethical foundation and the foundation of devotion was extremely strong. And so, but then they had to kind of work to pull them out of, of more superstitious uh, tendencies. You know, uh, uh, worshiping devas, not that devas were a problem, but worshiping as a refuge in and of themselves. Right? You can pull them out. This is what real Dhamma practice is. So the four sajans did a lot of education for their whole generation. Um, and then, and then maybe you sometimes you come to the West, and and sometimes you can almost write the Buddha out completely. You know, it's just like, well, I'm into the Dharma, but the historical figure of the Buddha is not so important to me. Um, doesn't doesn't play that much a role. Um, you know, you look at certain uh, events in the Buddha's life, and and you can be critical, and and kind of sometimes goes to the other extreme of, it's like, well, actually, you know, when I, I mean, I try to think, imagine what the Buddha was like, in moments when I probably should be meditating. You know, so imagine what the Buddha would be like, and and just having known so many different Thai meditation masters. You know, each with their own unique qualities, each with their own personalities, and yet they all kind of had the, something in common, in this sense of, I don't know, a sense of non-self that you could just kind of feel, you get a, get a feel for. But if you if you combined all of their good qualities, you know, like Ajahn Chah was, was uh, extremely gifted in teaching and in speaking and um, ability to connect with people of all different cultures, and he was meticulous in in his training. Um, you combine that with like the the energy and, and fierceness of Ajahn Mahabua or the the deep samadhi of Lumpur Chorp, or you know you combine the good qualities of all these masters, and then multiply it times a hundred. Maybe you can get a, get a sense that yeah, the Buddha was indeed a real person, very much very human. At the same time, it's like wow, this was real. This was a person really worthy of respect. I mean, even even those people who were fortunate enough to meet Ajahn Chah, while he was still teaching, while he was still uh, very engaged, people maybe who had no connection or interest in Buddhism whatsoever, they were still uh, kind of blown away. Right? It was a feeling of, wow, they were very impressed. 
just as uh, the quality of 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 um, his, his power, the, the sense of peace that he emanated, uh, his warmth. You know, it's just and people are very you make a real impression on people. And I can imagine that. Uh, if you imagine the Buddha as a human being, but an extremely special one, who who really was a, a refuge, and you say, well, what what is how do you how do you envision taking the Buddha as a refuge? Right? Certainly not a, like a deity. You're not taking refuge in a deity in that over respect. And you're not taking, and you don't want to throw the Buddha out of the picture. And say, wow, well, he was. He left his wife. He was irresponsible. You know, you know, he didn't like. He didn't want bikinis. He's a misogynist. You know. I mean, it's like you know, with any person's life, you can whatever you can you can analyze it. But but um, just how do we, you know, just looking at the three refuges? How do you actually take? The Buddha as a refuge. I mean, you can you can take it out of the historical context and just say the quality of awakening. All right, it's a bit that's a bit California and a bit New Agey, but <laughs> but that works. If that works, then that's fine. If it gives rise to wholesome states of mind, then then we're good. Um, but also, uh, just personally, you know, for me, just imagining. Um, the person who is, when I read the suttas, for example, imagining the person who is actually giving those dhamma talks, right? That that then were rec- memorized and recorded and written down as what we have today as the Pali Canon. Um, I mean, that is mind blowing. You imagine uh, hearing a dhamma talk of, of one of the uh, suttas in the Diganikaya. <laughs> uh, you would have come away thinking that was the most awesome Dhamma talk I have ever heard. And and word would spread very quickly. And so, you know, I can, a lot of the historical sense, then, you know, just that naturally gives rise to a sense of faith and devotion, which is a quality that we're, is not nurtured in in a Western approach. Uh, maybe it is in, in Judeo-Christian traditions, but um, often those of us who get into the Dhamma are maybe not into the devotional side of, of theistic religion. That's maybe one reason why we like Vipassana or, or, or getting into meditation as, as a vehicle for transformation. Then we find, maybe come back and realize, well, there's, there's a certain quality of devotion which is really helpful you know? and and joyful. And this is one of the things that you can't, you know, you, you can give a Dhamma talk and say, well, um, devotion plays a role in Dhamma practice and it's a wholesome state of mind and um, it gives rise to joy and it's good, you know, leads, uh, creates a good foundation for developing samadhi. Right? But that's very intellectual. And then you go to the Westerners, we'll go to the monastery and they'll see the Thai people making, you know, just you know, kind of the the depth of, of devotion that comes out in making an offering and the joy that they get from it. And then you you kind of get a gut feeling of oh this is 
this is why it's helpful. It's like, it's a whole picture. It's a whole lifestyle. It's, it's not just meditation. It's not just a technique. It's, it's not just anything. It's, it's a whole lifestyle. And, and that joy that comes from this type of Dhamma practices is a key ingredient. I mean, joy, piti, is, is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's right there. Buddha said you, you have to have joy uh, in order to develop states of enlightenment, you know, realizations of enlightenment, deep insight. Is, is, it's an indispensable part of Dhamma practice. So that's fortunate. I mean, you know, it's fortunate that that's just kind of the way the human mind unfolds. It would, even if the Buddha said, joy is an enemy to enlightenment, but enlightenment is still what you want to go for, then, you know, there'd still be a lot of people, maybe less people, but there'd still be some people who would say, okay, well, let's not be joyful. Joy is an enemy, but... um, we still want to be wise. But fortunately, joy is, is an indispensable part of our practice, so it's not something that should be feared. Right? Sometimes the Westerners are like, I don't know, afraid to be joyful in meditation. It's like, don't worry about getting attached to your happiness in meditation. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you start to... <laughs> start to be you start to feel oh this feels peaceful I start to feel happy in meditation and then some I don't know old conditioning comes up and says don't get attached to happiness right. it happened to me my first meditation teacher in Thailand was a German monk and uh, I started telling well you know starting to experience uh, states of happiness and joy coming up meditation feels good and he's like don't get attached to that <laughs> you know very strongly very strong. no you'll just develop attachment and clinging and you'll never make any progress so I thought it's like oh god I really got to be careful not to get happy in meditation I was just, okay this is serious Serious. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? I mean, starting to enjoy meditation. God, that's stupid. I'm just going to be stupid forever. No, I want to be wise, so I'm going to be serious. And and uh, and then, you know, eventually I got into the forest tradition and living with Thai masters, and they're like really happy and and the Thai monks were just they were serious and it was intense practice I mean it was full on practice at the same time it was a real relaxed feeling it was like it was was fun and I realized it was okay to be happy I want to leave some time for questions, so maybe I'll wrap it up here and then um, be happy to answer uh, any and all questions. I'll offer this for your reflection this evening.
Anyone have anything you might be curious about? Yes? You mentioned uh, kind of like a, not a fear, but a state of not wanting to accept joy or happiness. And I've actually have experienced that kind of in a guilt sense of being too happy and have also heard or maybe read somewhere that not to get too attached to the happiness for that reason because once it goes away that feeling of emptiness is what's going to make you suffer so where is that medium or where's that medium of that balance where joy or happiness is okay and for one to be content and mm-hmm. I feel like it's guilty about it uh, one's on happiness and maybe seeing suffering around you Mm-hmm. Exactly. Where is the balance for <coughs> relating to happiness, not falling into the extremes? On one extreme, it is possible to it is possible to get attached to joy and happiness at certain times and at certain levels, right? And recognizing that recognizing that, okay, if if I'm sitting, let's say let's say we're sitting meditation, someone's sitting meditation, and and it's like, oh, I'm just blissing out, oh, I'm just blissing out, oh, it's great, and then the meditation stops, and and I feel like, dude, that was so blissful, <laughs> right? And that's all it is every day. That's going to be very, you're going to have very limited results. Uh, for that that type of dhamma practice, it's going to be relaxing. It's going to maybe be helpful stress reduction. Um, maybe you know you start or end the day with you know feeling kind of in balance. So you know that's good. But it will it will be very limiting in terms of its ability to to take it deeper into either states of samadhi or, or insight. At a much deeper level. There are there are times when the meditation becomes so refined that you know it's so satisfying that you don't have a you almost have to push yourself a little bit you know to to go into insight right right and the mind is so tricky you know there are times when you you think oh I'm I'm definitely you know I'm practicing insight I'm here for the wisdom and yet, really, it's, we're just loving that that state of whether it's being relaxed, being spacious, um, even if it's like awareness of of emptiness, uh, conscious, you know, expanded consciousness, aware of consciousness, and uh, and whatnot, everything that comes into that consciousness, arising and passing away, right? Every wholesome state of mind is still an opportunity for attachment. Right? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, but every every wholesome step, whether it's sila, dana, whether it's um, any aspect of meditation, any wholesome state of mind is conducive to attachment. Right? The ego will just get in there and ruin everything. You know, if we let it. So it it takes a certain kind of vigilance, not a neurotic vigilance, which 
sometimes you know goes off balance in a different way. But then, uh, Westerners sometimes have a complicated relationship with happiness. Right, the Thais don't. Right, I'm I'm more from in terms of Asian culture. I'm more familiar with Thai culture. Thais is pretty simple. You know, you're happy. You're happy. Right? The Westerners, even just being happy, you know, can can bring up a you know guilt can start to come up, and then self-criticism for feeling guilty and that leads to a certain analysis and uh, realize god i'm so neurotic and i can't be happy and then and then and then the happiness goes and say oh no i've ruined it i've ruined my meditation i'm not happy anymore and so you know can get really complicated and it doesn't need to be that complicated. But you can't just for, we can't just force ourselves not to be complicated. It's part of our cultural conditioning. So then we just watch, you know, pay attention to that and try to see where this is going without, without getting lost in, in psychoanalysis, you know, analyzing ourselves or our, or our history, right? You know, just, but watching our conditioning come up and say, okay, there it is again, you know, this movement towards complication. Say, okay. There it is, but I don't have to follow it. I have a choice. I don't have to follow it. You know? Or if carrying on from our last talk, maybe we don't really have a choice. You know, there is no free will. But that's a different Dhamma talk. <laughs> but it feels like we have a choice. And so, you know, if this move towards, you know, if, if guilt comes up, maybe that's very deep conditioning. Guilt comes up and just noticing, okay, there's guilt. If we can, if we can just stay there and just watch it, even if it doesn't go away, we just watch it. Okay, there's guilt. That's fine. All right? It's not like we're. It's not like guilt is the enemy. Even if it's an unwholesome state of mind, it's not an enemy. We're not trying to kill it. All right? But we're watching it. You know, we don't want to let it overtake us. All right? That's not helpful. Uh, trying to push it away is not helpful. It doesn't really go away. That's just another form of attachment, aversion. All right? So, but watching, accepting. Allowing its energy to gradually kind of peter out, right? It disappears, and then maybe it comes up again, you know. But over years, <laughs> you know, it gradually gets weaker and weaker and weaker, and you notice after a while, oh, now I can just be happy. Our happiness arises in meditation just through causes and conditions, and we don't get in the way, you know. Our, our mental habits don't get in the way, and realize, oh, I don't feel guilty about it anymore. Right? It just kind of gradually fades away. Yeah, G? Uh, you mentioned um, that Ute Janiya, I think, visited your monastery and you had some time together. Um, and I know he has um, a little different practice than, uh, I guess, the Thai forest tradition. Um, a lot of attention and awareness practice. and But in some ways similar, uh, like, as you were talking about, mindfulness and every day, all your activities. And I was just kind of curious in that conversation, mm-hmm. um, the differences or the similarities in, in his practice uh, and the Thai forest tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, this was the thing that struck me. People were saying, oh, he's teaching us radical new teaching, just being aware of everything in daily life. <laughs> and I you know, scratched my head and said, well, you know, that's... 
from day one in the forest tradition, this is what we practice. And I was like, what's so special about that? But then so I had never been to Burma. I had never been to to those to the the great meditation monasteries there, and and I realized from my conversations with Sayadaw was that in Burma that was a very different way of looking at practice. You know, a very different way of 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 deviating from a, a, a established tradition of you know this is Dhamma practice and this is not Dhamma practice, and kind of. A, a, blurring those lines a bit. So in the end, I didn't really see much difference between what he taught and and the forest ajans. It was very similar. I mean, it still has Burmese flavor, but essentially the practice and the results are pretty similar. So, um, talking about bringing uh, awareness to uh, your daily activities, I, as I've mentioned to you, I play softball, competitive softball, and I just got back from a three-day tournament. And um, it's a very diverse group of men that I play with, and uh, uh, no other Buddhists that I know of. Uh, And... um, in a certain way, I realize that I am subjecting myself to a lot of, um, at times, negativity. Not not always, not always, but at times, uh, the competitive stuff, the judgmental stuff, um, can be very challenging. Um, I think it's great training for me to to watch when the sense of self arises, and how that, as you said, that destroys being in the flow of of your activity, in this case, fielding and batting, and, and how different those both feel. And, and that to me, that's a great practice, and I, and I use it, and I follow it. But I guess my question is, is there a place uh, in this practice to challenge yourself? To, to, I, I do, I'm doing this, and I realize it would be easier for me if I didn't subject myself to any of this. And yet, mm-hmm. it brings a lot of joy for me to participate and do what I do. Um, but is there a place to, um, okay, can I, even in the face of this negativity, can I find a place of, uh, of, of wholesome mind state and compassion or whatever? So just that, mm-hmm. is it, what about the challenging ones? Yeah. Well, you know, the Buddha didn't just teach mindfulness. Right? And, it's, and it's interesting with every aspect Every step of the Noble Eightfold Path, the two things that are necessary for each step is mindfulness, sati, and right effort. So awareness is the first step, but then what is necessary for for increasing wholesome states of mind, decreasing wholesome states of unwholesome states of mind. Um, so it, it's not just a passive relationship of watching. It's a very dynamic interaction of there is this mental state. If it's an unwholesome mental state, is there something I can do to to alleviate it, change it? And sometimes just being aware does it already. Poof, mindfulness is strong. Whole, unwholesome state of mind is weak. Just being aware of it, it disappears. But sometimes it, it's very stubborn, you know, and over powerful, and and so you have to watch it and come 
find different ways of approaching it. How do I work, you know, work with it, different techniques, sometimes different skillful means that may not work for anybody else, but we find what works for ourselves. And it is definitely, uh, definitely part of Buddhist practice to keep striving for improvement. At the same time, realizing, you know, that everything is karmically in this present moment is perfect in and of itself. But then how we how we respond to that is where we literally create our future moment by moment. So what's happened now, I mean, you swing and you miss. There's nothing you can do to change that. No matter how upset we get or self-critical, there's nothing we can do to to alleviate that nothing you can do to to uh, to erase that strike. You have to give up all hope for a better for a better past, right? <laughs> right? This this idea, oh, if, if only the past was different, right? Well, just give that up <laughs> because that's that's just a way to create suffering. So everything is karmically perfect. Okay, well, that happened all according to causes and conditions, but then how we respond to that, that, that is where we train. And it is very much a training. The Buddha always talked about Dhamma practice as a training, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like an Olympic athlete. You know, it takes um, consistent uh, dedication and persistence and, and, you know, it takes energy. Yeah. It takes a lot of, of energy. But how to relate to that energy and effort in a way which doesn't create stress, that's another balanced thing. Right? This is another thing that's so different between the Thai monks that I'm used to living with in Thailand and, and Westerners. Generally, Thais are perfectly happy to sit around all afternoon um, doing relatively nothing, kind of chit-chat, maybe talking about Thai boxing or something. Right? And they're... And so a lot of the forest ajans, you know, have developed an enthusiastic way of giving Dhamma talks to kind of light a fire underneath their butts and so you get it, you know, in put forth effort, right? And it brings them into balance, you know, and, and that brings them into balance. And maybe people coming from a modern culture that's used to striving and competitiveness, you give them that same Dhamma talk and it just puts them over the edge in the opposite direction. Even if they take it on board, they're like, oh my God, I got to try even harder. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm still not good enough. Still not good enough. Gotta meditate longer, harder, sit through the pain. And whereas... What's important is not that specific Dhamma talk, but the balance. What is necessary to bring ourselves into balance? So if we know and we watch that we have a nature that is already well-developed for self-improvement, competitiveness, wanting to be better, I mean, we've had, just think of our education that we've gone through that has been built around that, you know, um, grades, striving, um, Everything, everything for, for um, quote unquote successful people, you know, there's, uh, is built around that, and and so that is highly developed in our cultural conditioning. And so for people like that, 
we just need to kind of relax and you know, we take the take our foot off the accelerator and then suddenly it comes into balance right it's like the there's already enough momentum there is a there is a wish to 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 strive and get better you know every effort in, in and of itself is like a whole relationship with dhamma practice that we we we're constantly investigating and, and falling out of balance sometimes we try too hard and that doesn't work sometimes we we get a bit lazy and that doesn't work and then we become self-critical for being lazy and that doesn't work so <laughs> so so just like how do we maintain a consistency you know uh, energy is necessary effort is necessary it's not like you know the mind is pristine and perfect already therefore you don't have to do anything right um, it's uh, that's not. I've never seen that to be the case. <laughs> you know, even even uh, the even someone like Ajahn Chai. You look at his biography. I mean, God, he practiced so hard in the in their first you know decade or two of his Dhamma practice. I mean, really intensely. Um, but in, but in balance, it wasn't it wasn't like striving out of balance in a way that creates uh, a restless mind or creates tension or or feeds the ego. I mean that's the other thing with effort. You know the the idea that I am doing something, I am the one who's striving for a goal, and this is you know the trap that we can fall into of of. I mean this is this is where sometimes teachings on don't make any effort. You know they're addressing this. Don't make any effort. Just sit and relax, because for some people that that's what they need to hear. Don't do anything. You know, just sit there, right? And they're so used to doing and doing and striving and, and some some kind of future goal. Happiness is always in the future somewhere once we achieve this. But just sitting, doing nothing, suddenly, you know. And the, but that is actually doing something. That is right effort in that specific situation, right? That is effort. So finding this relationship with, with what right effort is and what works is a very personal thing, and it changes. You know, there are times where certain times in our life where we, we need to strive harder and other periods where we need to actually just relax, learn how to relax, and like with with everything, every aspect of Dhamma practice, when our ego gets involved with it, then it uh, it takes something good and then defiles it. Right? That's just that's just the nature of the self. It's so insidious. It's like just when you think it's going good, then we start to identify with it and realize, you know, the sense of self is just kind of we're looking over here. It's just gone around, gone around our back, and come from the other angle. And then we realize, oh God, now I'm ad- identifying with my being in the zone. <laughs> <laughs> I am one who is in the zone, and then if I fall out of the zone, I suffer because now I expect to be in the zone, and that leads to disappointment. And so, oh, again, I fall into, fell into the trap. After twenty years, <laughs> so so it's a it is the balance. You know, it's not like one thing or another. It's like, of course, you know, it's we start from a place of relative 
ignorance with a lot of bad mental habits and we're kind of aiming for uh, a state of purity, mental purity and defi- uh, free of defilements, uh, a mind that's totally free and it doesn't just happen by itself and yet we can't force it to happen with willpower. So, and that's, that's where the Zen teacher just says, just sit. <laughs> Actually, my first Zen teacher used to use baseball similes. He always say, again, the same way you say, just sit. Just like when you swing with the ball, you don't have, you think too much, you miss. Right? Right? But if you don't pay attention, you miss. You know, so you got to swing just right. Don't let the mind get in the way. And then, you're Um, you were talking about at the monastery, there are people who come from many different cultures and have different perceptions and different ways of viewing the Dhamma and um, probably everything else too. And this is very interesting to me because of course we're at a time now where there are really strong, diverse opinions being expressed about everything in our culture. And what's really interesting to me is to find a way to um, listen to people who have very different opinions and in an, you know, in an honest um, way that's not trying, doesn't have a subtext mm-hmm. of, uh, of convincing. But I'm interested in anything you have to say about that because we're in a pretty volatile situation. Yeah. No matter how strange or wonky someone else's viewpoint might seem from their perspective that's reality and so okay well as a perspective or as a perception on their part that is you know on that level it's it's equally as valid as mine or anyone else's right it just on the as a perception now that doesn't mean it's I don't know there's the Buddha didn't didn't really talk in terms of an ultimate truth, right? He talked much more in terms of uh, the perspectives that we have, the how we project our perceptions um, to create our reality. And so, for other people, whatever information and causes and conditions and conditioning that they have, that has led to their view. That's how they see things, their view, their opinion. So on that level, we can respect people. And if, you know, if everyone tries to do, if everyone makes the attempt to do that, then it's much easier to get along. Even if people have completely opposing viewpoints, say, okay, well, um, it's not that one person has to be right and the other person's wrong. But it, it only really works if everyone's trying to do that, right? But even if only one person is trying to do that, at least it's peaceful. It's more peaceful. You can hear other viewpoints and say, well, okay, well, that, even if it's different from mine, that's, that viewpoint arises from causes and conditions, and that's the natural, logical result. You know? And so it becomes easier to 
not get upset. I mean, sometimes we hear an opinion and then, and then days later we're still ruminating about how could they think that? Yeah, so it doesn't make any sense. That's not true. Right? So at least it's more peaceful that way. As the abbot of the monastery, I'm in a unique position where I can listen to someone's opinion and, you know, sincerely listen and say, okay, that's fine. But we're going to do it like this anyways. Because <laughs> I'm in charge. <laughs> and, but th- that wouldn't work if I didn't really... You know, if I if I dissed their their opinion or viewpoint, or felt like they they felt like they weren't really listened to, weren't really heard, then that wouldn't work. But you know, I can say, well, yeah, I really, I fully understand that position, and and also, but but these people here, they also have their position, and that is equally worthy of respect. So I think this is a reasonable way to do it. And we're going to do it like this. I mean, just one example. I mean, you get Sri Lankans who have had Theravada Buddhism in their country, I think, the longest. So they feel a certain ownership for Theravada Buddhism. And the way they approach alms is you, you, if you sign up to bring food on that day, that's your day. That is your day to bring food to the monastery. You bring food for the whole community, even if it's hundreds, but it's only you. You get all the merit. Or good karma. Right? right? You get every that's your day. No one else comes. The Thai tradition is you just spend you feel like going to the monastery any particular day, you just get up and say, Let's go to the monastery. Okay, let's go. It's just like spontaneous you know, there's no Thais are like plan ahead. Come on, get it <laughs> you know, s- sign up on a roster. That's we don't do that. It's just like when we feel like coming, we come. When we don't feel like coming, we don't come. And initially, that used to drive the Sri Lankans crazy. Some of them, yeah. It's like they prepare food for the whole for everyone, and they're all excited. And they've been up since early morning cooking, and after all the preparation the previous days, and they come, and then and then suddenly these Thai people come, and they're all happy and joyful, and it's like, who? It's our day. What are you doing? This is our this is our day. And the Thais are all like. What's your problem? You know, <laughs> you know. We bring food. You bring food. It's all good, right? <laughs> the Thais are like, they just kind of put their food out in front, and the Sri Lankans are trying to move it in the back. And, <laughs> you know, and you realize this is this is a cultural thing that there's no way you're going to please everybody. There's no way you can have a only one strict roster. And at the same time, allow spontaneity for whoever comes at any time. So um, we had to actually discuss it. You know, I would just bring it up and talk about Sri Lankans think that the way that they've learned is the way, the proper way. Thais think that the way that they've learned is the way and the proper way. And just to break out of that cultural limitation of perspective and say yes that's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that perception however this other group of people they're also very good buddhists and they have a different perception is it possible that everyone can be happy just respecting whatever happens 
And so, it, after after a you know, regular discussion for about a year or so, and it never, <laughs> and it wasn't an issue anymore. <laughs> now it hasn't been an issue for a long time. Yeah. Huh? What was the solution? Uh, just bringing up, making it conscious to people that their position was merely a culturally conditioned habit or perception on their part that was valid. However, it was only that. It wasn't, that didn't mean everyone else had to follow their way of thinking. And so it was, in that way, it was a good Dhamma practice, a Dhamma lesson for everybody. You say, oh, you grow up in a particular culture, you don't see it as a culture, you just see that as normal, right? I mean, we, we, we can look at other cultures, and, we, and their culture is very obvious to us, but the things that we've grown up with here in this culture, we, we don't even notice as culture. It's just normal. It's just like the water we swim in. We don't, but then other cultures see, oh, these Westerners, their culture is like this. I so, Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's not easy to break out of our cultural conditioning and actually see it as merely cultural conditioning or the opinions or, or viewpoints that we have that arise from our cultural conditioning, parental conditioning, uh, educational conditioning, I mean, you name it, that that is simply a result of all these causes and it has a natural result and that's why we view and approach life in a particular way. It's just one, well, it's only one very limited way of looking at out of the whole spectrum. It's just one band on the whole spectrum. And so to, to be able to break out of that, or at least to be open to the fact that, oh, all these other viewpoints have their, some validity or they exist, you know, that does a lot to create spaciousness and conversation Patience, forgiveness, acceptance, dhamma practice. Dealing with viewpoints and attachment to viewpoints is a whole dhamma practice in and of itself. You know, talking about making everything into meditation. You know, you bring try to bring dhamma into politics. (laughs) It's not. It's not very well established yet. (laughs) Well, it's a very fertile ground for progress. There's a lot of progress possible because you're starting at uh, starting at a pretty low bar. <laughs> Kim. Oh yeah. Uh, the time though, it's nine. It's all right. We got a few minutes. Okay. A couple of minutes. I was going to ask. Um, uh, I appreciated the way you pointed out that the different masters you'd worked with had kind of different qualities that shone forth in the way the Dharma was coming through them. So I guess I wanted to ask sort of generally, how does that come about? And if a person is, you know, practicing for a while, uh, kind of how, how is the sense of, oh, this is just the way the Dharma works for me, or is it that, like, like if somebody is more of the mindfulness in daily life type, is it valuable for them to try to develop samadhi in order to bring that more about? Or do you just say, well, for me, the Dharma is more about this mindfulness in daily life. How does one navigate that as practice develops? Well, every 
Well, in terms of personality, sometimes it's it's qualities such as some some. I mean, of the Ajahn Mun disciples, some were great teachers, some maybe not. Some had lots of disciples, some maybe only a handful. Um, some were kind of very easygoing, you know, to be around. Some were kind of very strict, and and you know, it's like. Um, a wide variety. You know, some naturally had an inclination towards developing deep samadhi. And for those people, then uh, having a a teacher was very important to, say, you know, keep pushing the wisdom side, right? Keep bringing them back, bringing them back, you know? And for the people who maybe bit, you know, the, the inside of the wisdom, came more naturally, then uh, it was important for a teacher to maybe to get them, pull them out of a, of a more intellectual way of looking at it or analytical way of looking at it and just getting them to, to sit, you know, for long periods of time. Often, I mean, everybody has to develop both Samatha and Vipassana. I mean, they just go together. It's very clear in the suttas. It's totally clear in my everything I've learned in the forest tradition. There's no one who's only Vipassana. There's no one who's only Samadhi. It's it's just a matter of, you know, for some people, it become one side is a bit easier than the other. But but once you develop one, it's going to lead to the other. You know, if you really develop wisdom, that leads to letting go, which then we feel more peaceful, and then it's easier to develop samadhi, which then creates the the energy and the purity of mind for insight insight to develop, and they and they go together absolutely. Generally, this is a generalization, but generally, insight will go as deep as the level of samadhi, right? I mean, I start, when I first went to Thailand, I, I was Samadhi, my teacher, uh, it wasn't the forest tradition, you know, it was more of a, a bit more of a Burmese-based Mahasi style, and the teacher that I had uh, discouraged me from developing any Samadhi at all. Any time that my mind, you know, was starting to feel happy, <laughs> happy, peaceful, bright, he said, No! <laughs> It's like bad, bad meditator. No, you just keep analyzing, 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 and um, you know, I realized that uh, that didn't. Yeah, that had a lot of value. You know, certainly it was really beneficial. But it it was only it was only really when I brought it together with the. Uh, fully appreciating you know the the depth of samadhi that would bring forth the wisdom um as much as i would try to analyze something uh you can you can look at something as impermanent not self you know unsatisfactory you can keep hitting away at every single thing that arises from that but without samadhi for me it's just kind of like scratching the surface right i mean it's true it's like aware of this, aware of this, aware of this, or of this, you know, aware of this, this falling away, this falling away, this falling away. But it, it not really, it didn't really go deep. It was like it's true, but but it wasn't very peaceful. Whereas with 
let's say, periods of retreat where I would spend, I would spend all, probably the majority of the time just developing anapanasati, you know, kind of a classic way of, of just becoming peaceful, focused, bright, still. And then I would turn my mind, you know, at its most peaceful point. Generally, say, our, our tradition says, however peaceful your mind is at a particular time during the day, then do contemplation, you know, insight practice. Or, uh, investigate the body, investigate the mind, you know, specifically turn it to that when the mind is most peaceful, however peaceful it is, even if it's only a little bit. And so then when I would do that, I would only need to do a little bit, and the results were like, wow. Right? It's like, like forest masters would say, you know, if you really, if your mind is really peaceful and really very, I mean, right samadhi has to have crystal clear mindfulness. Otherwise, it's not right samadhi, right? It's not like a dull state of mind. It's, you're developing a, a continuity, a very clear awareness. It just has this depth to it at the same time. And then you turn that to, it would say, you just look at one hair on the back of your hand. And if you fully understand that one hair, you, you understand that all conditioned phenomena in the universe have the same characteristics. And... Just because the mind's primed, it's like primed. It doesn't take so so much work. Right? But you know, sometimes samadhi isn't that strong, and then it takes a bit more work. You know, we try to investigate or understand something, then it slips away. You know, it kind of slips away. You know, we have to bring it back, and it slips away. The state of mind that we call upajara samadhi, which is a commentarial term, but it means you're not in jhana, but your senses are functioning and there's no, uh, there are no hindrances present. Right? So the mind is absolutely pure. For long periods of time, not just for a moment, but you know, for periods of time, then you can actually hold your attention on a theme of investigation and it won't slip away. You know, uh, distracting thoughts don't come into, uh, restlessness doesn't come in. Uh, you just stay with the theme of contemplation. You just let it sink in. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so that's why jhana is important because. <laughs> I guess that means they're, it's not like at the Oscars when they play music. You know, they kind of play music to pull you off. So your time is up, music comes up. Okay, okay, I get the message. But, and I would like to thank... thank <laughs> um, and that's why, jhana, jhana, that's why jhana is so important. But you can't investigate while in jhana. But coming out of jhana, the mind is in such a pure, stable state for relatively long periods of time, then that is, that is the best opportunity for developing real insight. <laughs> so, okay, we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Hall. Um, if anyone would like to develop right effort and good karma, and who wouldn't? Um, there's a big heavy table in here which has been offered to our little hermitage, and we're going to load it into our our truck, which is just in the parking lot here. Uh, 
if we had a, a few helping hands, then even a heavy table will seem light. So thank you all for this evening. Uh, anyone who would like to come up to the Hermitage, I'll be there until about June 24th. Kim is going up. She's looking for uh, people to join her on the 16th. Yeah. Um, uh, Betsy is probably planning to go up. Jill is planning to go up. Maybe Nancy. Nancy comes up every year. So you can connect with these people. Maybe you know they know the way. Um, uh, or if you if you want if you want to come on your own, come and see me. I can tell you how to get there. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash donate.